Hi there, I'm Josh Pinner. This is the Evangelism Training Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Dr. David Gustafson and his latest book, Gospel Witness Through the Ages, where he surveys the history of evangelistic efforts. Great book, really enjoyed it and enjoyed this conversation and the insights that Dr. Gustafson shares with us on the history of evangelism. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Evangelism Training Podcast. I'm Josh Benner. So excited to be joined today by Dr. Gustafson, who I had as a professor at Trinity on a class on the history of preaching. Today, we'll be talking about the history of evangelism and his latest book, Gospel Witness Through the Ages. Dr. Gustafson served 25 years in ministry, first as campus director with crew at Fresno State University in California, and then as a pastor in two evangelical free churches in the Great Lakes District. Prior to Trinity, he taught courses in Christianity at the University of Houston and courses in practical ministry at Houston Graduate School of Theology. Dr. Gustafson's areas of expertise include evangelism, evangelical free church history, and missional praxis. Dr. Gustafson and his wife Sharon have four children. They enjoy bicycling, backpacking, and cooking stir fry. Great hobbies. Dr. Gustafson, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk to you about the history of evangelism. I'm glad to be here, Josh. It's good to see you again and connect. So this is a fun topic to talk about, too. Absolutely. The first thing I'd be curious to ask you, um, and I've heard people say this numerous mm -hmm. times in conversation, and it relates to a quote that you mentioned in the book that comes from mm -hmm. Tertullian, which is that idea that the uh, blood of Christians is the seed of the church, and this idea that persecution actually fuels growth in the church. Is Napoleon right? Hmm. Well, uh, it was for his day and context, and I think probably so as well. We've seen this happen during persecution or when Christians are under persecution in other eras too. I think of communist China where we saw, uh, we've seen the church grow. So so I think so. Um, you know, I, I have my book here and I just, uh, I thought I'd turn and look at at uh, everything that he he said about that. So, uh, you know, with uh, the first uh, couple of centuries, really the first three centuries until Christianity became legally tolerated, uh, Christians were were seen as a enemy of the state because they um, had. Uh, an allegiance to Jesus as Lord and not Caesar. And so because of that, there was persecution. And so whenever the state tried to uh, squell the advance of Christians, uh, they tended to, uh, through persecution, especially and even martyrdom. So that's where you get um, that, that martyrdom is the seed uh, of the church. Persecution is the seed or, you know, uh, being, you know, put to death uh, uh, because of, and with that, you know, there's blood flowing or whatever. Um, with that, there was an uh, increased number of people who came to faith. And that's partly because uh, within the early pagan world, people saw how committed Christians were. And it, it said to th these pagans or heathen, and when I say that, I just mean common people who, you know, have um, views, a worldview other than Christianity. But when they would see that, it challenged their own uh, thinking 
as to the importance of what this must be that Christians are willing to die for. And so that was what uh, uh, Tertullian, he was actually writing to his own emperor, making a case to not tolerate Christians. He said, you should be, in, uh, not to persecute Christians rather. Um, he said, you should uh, protect them and not you know, be trying to put them to, uh, uh, to death. And then he makes this comment and uh, I'll look at the uh, the entire thing here if I can find it. Yeah, so he, he claimed that putting Christians to death did not dissuade them. It only gave them additional opportunities to spread their, their beliefs. And um, so this is, this is actually what he said. The more often you mow down, um, we are mown down by you, or, you know, like a, you know, late uh, knockdown, uh, the more we are mown down by you, the more we grow in number. The blood of Christians is seed. And uh, so again, this is one of those, those evangelism methods that we don't often talk about, nor do we apply. <laughs> but it's true that in the history of the church, when Christians were put to death because of their faith, uh, the testimony, and that's actually the interesting idea that martyr means like witness or testimony, that the testimony uh, seen by others um, actually prompted them to consider what is this and become very serious themselves about studying who Jesus is and the convictions that Christians had. So uh, it really is fascinating. To your question, I think uh, Tertullian uh, is right. Very interesting, and uh, it, it, it's interesting to consider in uh, light of things that happen in the world and throughout history in the church. Mm -hmm. um, for several months, I've been struck by a comment that a gentleman in my church made. And I'd be curious what your opinion is on. Mm -hmm. So, we're very blessed to live in a country with a, a lot of freedoms. Mm -hmm. And so, Today in the world, there are certain places where they're very harsh and crack down on Christianity. Um, in America, it's almost like the gospel gets drowned out by so many other competing voices. It's almost like it's the opposite issue where it doesn't get silenced. It just kind of gets clouded out in all of the noise. And uh, I'd be curious if you think that's kind of a, I don't know if unique is the right word, but that a challenge that we face in America in our context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, where we are known primarily for other issues than perhaps the gospel. And that's, I think what you're saying, it gets drowned out um, based on maybe our convictions in other areas and uh, what we're heard uh, or how we're heard is often for those kinds of things. So yeah, it can get very much uh, drowned out. So that's a challenge that we live or that we face in our current day and time. It's certainly, a, uh, especially within the West. So other parts of the world and different times that, that hasn't always been the case, but, but you're right. Uh, the, the main message of Christians uh, can become, uh, uh, as you said, you know, drowned out or pushed aside or something to that effect. And so we become known by other things than the gospel uh, itself. So which helps, you know, we, it should, that should prompt us to think about uh, keeping the good news of Christ first and foremost, 
And uh, it's a little bit hard. I mean, there's there's times where you'll engage in in uh, conversations uh, with uh, people who are far from God. And maybe if you self-identify as a Christian, a Christ follower, something that I, I actually prefer that language when I'm talking to people, it's a little more, um, a, you know, it, it brings a, a little bit more of a reaction when they hear that. But if I'm myself identifying as a Christ follower, you know, I might get a question here, there that's very, you know, different um, then related to, to Christ and Christianity uh, might be a, a moral issue. And so we kind of camp out on that. So, you know, I, I try to address it quickly if I, if I can, but otherwise um, go back to the fact that, uh, you know, I'm a Christ follower. There's good reasons to understand the person and work of Jesus. So we try to keep it keep it on Christ. And I, I think historically Christians have done that too, sometimes kind of gotten off track but um, the, the point is, is that we need to, I believe, as, as you're uh, alluding to, keeping, you know, the good news of Jesus first and foremost. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Uh, one thing I'd be curious about, for somebody who wrote uh, an entire book on the history of evangelism, is there an era or a period in church history that you think is particularly strong and has parallels to our current situation in America? Mm, yeah. Yeah, well... We have made more references to pre-Christendom uh, because we would say, uh, I think there's general acceptance in the West now, even in America, that we are in an, I, I'll, I'll use the language, an increasingly post-Christian context, if not a post-Christian context. Now, let me qualify that. I think that various regions of the U.S. are more uh, post-Christian. Right. So especially New England and West Coast areas, you take like New York or Boston, uh, most of the New England uh, states, um, you take uh, West Coast uh, cities like um, uh, Seattle, um, San Francisco, um, perhaps Los Angeles. But those those are very post-Christian areas. We have maybe late Christendom in parts of the Midwest. And sometimes that's even maybe in more rural areas. And then perhaps we still have a cultural Christendom in the Bible belt, right? So hanging on. And so this reality of, of post-Christendom uh, means that, you know, we no longer have um, a kind of the, the, the cultural uh, control of the cultural narrative, and you know, there's increased marginalization of the church, marginalization of, of Christian voice, Christian values. So again, that's somewhat regional in the U.S. In Europe, it's much more pronounced, much more predominant. And so as it is, as it is also perhaps in Canada or, or parts. So the, the point is, is that um, we are, we are, uh, no longer in, in control of the cultural narrative, more marginalized. And we're feeling much more like the church did in the first three centuries uh, when it was persecuted, when it was not legal. Uh, Christianity was at first under the umbrella of Judaism, but by the mid um, first century, uh, Christianity began to be seen as a separate uh, religion from uh, Judaism, and that was being articulated 
clearly by a number of Jews who disagreed with Christ, uh, Christianity. So that meant that, that the Christians were subject to persecution. We weren't grandfathered as a religion into the, into the Roman Empire. And so there was persecution. And that led us to talk about, you know, what your question about Tertullian and uh, persecution and that the blood of martyrs is seed or seed of the church. Uh, so we're, we're feeling that we are more marginalized, perhaps to a degree persecuted. Now, we're not being put to death physically, but I know of Christians, especially in the corporate world, who, who are losing their jobs uh, because of their particular uh, moral views, their lack of affirmation of various, you know, secular values that that uh, put them at odds with their their company, their corporation, and they're being severed in terms of their employment. So there is real uh, persecution of of a degree, not to the point of death, but we are uh, seeing and feeling that. So, but even so. Um, we're, the the sort of pressure that we're feeling and students, you probably have students in your church, you have people in your congregation who are part of the school system. We're feeling increasingly the the pressure that we're at odds in terms of our values with the values of the world. So so we're feeling this. It is a little more. It's more of a hostile context, sure. and uh, and so with that, uh, we're identifying I think more with those first century believers who learned how to navigate their world, knowing that at any point they could be, you know, uh, put to death or persecuted or, you know, whatever. Uh, various um, church leaders at the same time were um, always subject to uh, that uh, threat of harm, you know, death. And so uh, we're, we're feeling that tension. It's, it's a new sort of feeling for us, but I think we can identify with them. The other would be those pockets of the church's growth within um, uh, heathendom. So again, I'm not trying to, but we've talked about kind of historically the, where the gospel has gone forward and the church has been established and there is some alliance of church and state. It may be politically, it might be culturally, that's Christendom. And outside of that would have been heathendom, which means this is simply the mission field. This is where we need to take um, to take the gospel. So at times the church has um, felt kind of the pressure also of a, uh, uh, as as the church moves into a certain area, the the weight of marginalization, the weight of persecution. So I think there are some times within the history of the church too that we can understand that. And we're not the first to experience post-Christianism either. So think of um, when the gospel first goes forward in the Greco-Roman world around the Mediterranean uh, basin there, that you have the expansion of Christianity um, into what's today Turkey, you have into Europe, you have the expansion of Christianity and on the the north uh, uh, on the the north coast of Africa, uh, there at the Mediterranean, and so you have um, an expansion. But then, with the rise of Islam, you have um, militant Islam that pushes Christians out, and Christians had to start to live under the um, the, the you know the military force of of Muslims. 
And they had to navigate and live in that world. So even people in Constantinople, uh, when the Turks advanced um, in North Africa, um, in you know Alexandria, which had been a major seat of Christianity. So uh, you've had Christians who have lost power. They've lost their influence. They've lo lost that cultural hegemony or uh, hegemony, however you say that. It's said differently by other by different people, but you know that that political cultural clout that you kind of set the stage, and so Christians have had to do that in other times and places as well, and I think we have something to learn from them, especially here yeah. in the West, and uh, with uh, increased uh, pressure uh, against us and our values. So, and I I I don't know how much uh, this this goes from kind of where where the church is, has been to where we are now. But uh, we, I think we're at a point where we have to learn again how to live um, in a more hostile, uh, persecuted uh, context where uh, we, are, we are the ones that uh, would be considered a threat to uh, the country. Much like those first Christians were considered a threat by Caesars to the empire, the Roman empire, uh, were considered uh, perhaps a threat um, to uh, the the Western sort of social experiment. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's the, a lot of great insights, and it's definitely something I think was interesting that you talk about in the book is some of the early persecution that Christianity faced in Rome, and I think it was in about the span of a century. The, the fourth century, where it went from still being about 10% of Rome to, you know, by the end of that century, being the state religion of Rome and how rapidly that increased. Um, and yeah, it seems like in some ways we're having almost the downward trajectory of what the uh, early church was, was um, experiencing and facing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw the articles recently Christianity Today reported on this, other news sources, the Pew survey that was estimating um, American Christianity in the year like 2070. And Pew had a couple of different estimates. They acknowledge that there's a, a lot of complicated factors, uh, but that Christians could be a minority in America in less than 50 years. And I always look at things like that and I, on the one hand, certainly it's lamentable that there's less of a gospel influence in our society. That's obviously unfortunate. But to me, there's also always a, a hopeful aspect of that where I think we saw it in Rome. I think we certainly saw it in Europe for many centuries where you have this strong influence of Christendom and where everyone is part of a church, is baptized, um, especially in Europe. and it seems like that can lead to some real evangelistic challenges of complacency and um, as I look at America presently, I, I feel like there can be, as numbers might decrease, I feel like it can also lead itself, lend itself to a more authentic church where there's less cultural pressure to say you're a Christian, if you're really not, I would rather, as a pastor, 
know if somebody's not a Christian and then go from there, then for somebody that feel like they need to put up a facade yeah. or tell me that they are because they think that's what I want to hear. I would rather somebody authentically believe in the gospel than just say that they do and maybe not. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's something that I see as, as some, a reason for optimism for the church in America. Again, authenticity. And I'd be curious, do you, do you agree with that? Or um, am I being yeah. too... Yeah, I, I'll... Um, I think the the Pew Research is reflecting and showing um, how people are self-identifying or not with Christ in the church. And so uh, I think they're, I think it is accurate. Should it raise alarm? Um, I think what we're seeing, and uh, some earlier studies have, have shown this, Ed Stetzer in his uh, work at Wheaton and the Billy Graham Center um, has looked at this in terms of the various groups here that we're talking about. So an increase uh, of the number of nuns or duns, you know, who would not be self-identifying with the church. But when you look at uh, the category of, as he says, convictional Christians, you have kind of like cultural Christians, perhaps, you know, self-identify because they're an American culture. Uh, the congregational Christians, because they're maybe a member of a church, uh, but we're seeing uh, you know, and non-Christians or the nuns are increasing. Um, the number of convictional Christians is staying relatively um, fixed. So we're not seeing so much movement. We're seeing movement from the cultural Christian and the congregational Christian to no longer identify as a Christ follower. And so they're now identifying with the nuns. They're of no religion. You know, they're they're declassifying themselves or whatever. And so that's that's the movement uh, that we're seeing over overall. That's not not bad. Uh, we would say in in some ways that it represents uh, the the cultural con- and congregational Christians would be, I would say mostly identified with uh, mainline denominations that have been theologically liberal. And it's not so much a move for people to no longer identify uh, with uh, Christianity because they've they've been pretty nominal in their faith, and that's the the language I think that you were using. Uh, that's that's always been a, a challenge within Christendom, meaning where the gospel's gone forward, where there's perhaps been a li- an alliance of church and state, meaning that the rulers are also very interested in seeing their subjects become Christians. And so there's some good cases and some bad cases of that. The worst cases are by force, yeah. which again produces a nominalism, a being known as a Christian um, uh, simply by name and not by conviction and lifestyle. And so that that always has been a challenge for us. And of course, we know that challenge. Uh, you, you, you probably know it as a, as a pastor and I've known it um, as a campus minister. And, and uh, you know, I actually was doing evangelism last week and with uh, three students uh, from Trinity on a local junior college and met a guy who we probably would put in the category of a nominal Christian, you know, very much says he's a Christian, but he can't really articulate the gospel. He can't really defend Jesus, you know, incarnation and his crucifixion and his resurrection doesn't really, you know, speak to that much. 
at all. So, so this has always been a challenge uh, within for evangelism within Christendom. We have to somehow convince those who think they're a Christian that they're not and that they need Jesus. They need to repent and believe. So nominalism, as soon as we hit that fourth century, you referred to um, within the fourth century, um, probably key points would be um, Constantine's conversion, uh, the Edict of Milan in 313, where Christianity is legalized, becomes legal, you're no longer persecuted for being a Christian, to under Theodosius in 380, 381, where he makes Christianity the, the state religion. It becomes the authorized. This Christianity is simply not legalized, but it actually it is the state, the state religion. <clears throat> so that's huge. But by that time, especially, it became very um, trendy, you know, sort of in vogue, you know, to belong to the church. And so the problem and the challenge of Christendom um, was nominalism at that point. A number of people uh, who become uh, Christians by name uh, because of, you know, a positive association with the church, but not necessarily really living that out. And of course, that gets compounded with, with what I've referred to as forced conversion under people like Constantine, uh, who becomes the the emperor of what you know is the the Holy Roman Empire in 800 A.D. and uh, his his conversion of the Saxons. A number of my my ancestors, you know, yeah. were were given the option uh, to either convert to Jesus or die by the sword. And so you have a number who who do that. Interestingly, I'll just say that uh, it's not necessarily that first generation, but by the second or third generation, these catechized Saxons are actually um, Christ followers and become a huge missionary force uh, in Europe uh, that it is advancing uh, northward to reach uh, you know, the barbarians. Again, my, some of my Germanic ancestors and uh, Nordic ancestors and that sort of thing. But the, the point is, is that nominalism has always been a problem. It's been a challenge um, with increased pressure today. So if I go back to the hostility of today against the church and against even Christianity, uh, where some would say Christianity is actually immoral. So we're, we're hearing that yeah. increasingly today. So with that, if people have been on the fence you know, kind of nominal, maybe part of, you know, identifying culturally as a Christian, or maybe because they've joined a church or did years ago, but don't really have the conviction. What we're seeing is they're abandoning their, their so-called faith. So it might be that, that things are just clearer as to where they are in their faith. Um, maybe they never really possessed a faith. They had kind of a, a loose association with Christianity. Pressure increases they're, they're no longer identifying. So the Pew research is showing, I think, that uptick among that particular group. Um, uh, it's, it's not as though we're without the challenges, even the, the broader evangelical church. I think we are in this sort of sorting time and a little bit of persecution, even social, um, uh, being you know, socially sort of uh, put down uh, for our Christian values or Christian faith is is enough to uh, cause some people to to 
to leave um, their faith or to modify. We're seeing that also. They will um, they'll accommodate to cultural demands, and so they they start um, modifying the Christian faith. So um, anyway, that's been a pressure that we've been living um, with for for quite a while in certain categories. But more recently, we're seeing that as well. So some some of the higher or you know visible Christian leaders will be modifying. They're deconstructing their evangelical Christian faith, and so they're kind of jettisoning this or that. Maybe holding on to you know a, a few things in terms of morals. They find it easier to go with the cultural trends than against them, and so it's easier to simply modify your views and accommodate the, the cultural trends rather than take a stand. Um, on the gospel, the particulars of the gospel, Jesus' incarnation, his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, you know, his second coming, those kinds of things, and some of the moral issues, you know, like, for instance, Jesus said, in the beginning, God made them male and female, so that's actually, you know, a statement that Jesus makes, and we're seeing people kind of, you know, discussing that one, and some people are really kind of throwing that out, versus, you know, holding on to even the, the words of Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and so anyway, that's, I think, giving rise to the increase of the nuns and um, how the how Pew Research is, is um, showing that. You mentioned uh, deconstruction. I feel like that's definitely becoming almost its own trend or fad, at least, especially probably in I'm a millennial and in younger circles. And um, is that something that you see as, it might not have been called deconstruction, but that similar type of uh, process, something that you see very much throughout church and evangelistic history? To, to a degree, uh, there is, there are a number of renewal mo movements. So I'll just speak of that. Uh, sure. And I think that, generally renewal movements in the history of the church um, are about, and of course the Protestant movement is, is about that. And even prior to that, you have a number of movements, uh, Peter Waldo and the Men of Lions, for instance, is a renewal movement, and they're gonna um, impact um, uh, what becomes the Moravian Brethren. And they are a non, they're outside of the Roman church, and so they're a, like a pre-Protestant uh, free church. And so they're operating, but really they're, they are very word-based, scripture-based, gospel-based movements. And so those, those things we see uh, throughout church history. There are these uh, renewals. Uh, we see that even within the establishment of uh, the Protestant churches in Europe, we see renewal movements. And um, it goes, you know, that, that idea that the church is always reforming. So you, we will see those, those sorts of uh, things happen. And so I guess that's a sort of deconstruction where you're deconstructing an enculturated Christianity and you're kind of going back to, you know, what is important? What does scripture teach? What, it, what does it mean simply to be a Christ follower? What simply does it mean to proclaim Jesus? What does it mean simply to live out in community as Christians what the gospel calls us to do and, 
and to be. So I think that there has been, you know, levels of deconstruction, but with that, there's there's construction or reconstruction, meaning, you know, if you're deconstructing elements of a an acculturated Christian faith, you need to um, equally provide um, uh, uh, tenets of Christian faith. You know, what are the essentials? What are the convictions that you're going to hold to? So in, I suppose, with the Protestant Reformation, if there's a deconstruction of a sacramental uh, theology of the medieval church that was very much characterized by the, the Roman church, uh, there was a, a reconstructing of faith, according to like uh, the five solas, with an authority no longer vested in simply a person, uh, the Bishop of Rome or the Pope, but now that there is also a, a renewed sense of authority in the scriptures, so God's word is our authority. So that, that's that idea of if you're going to uh, knock the, if you're, if you're no longer going to follow simply the, the Pope as an infallible authority, then you need to have a new authority. And, and that's what pre-Protestants uh, like Wycliffe, like John Haas, um, uh, Peter Waldo or Peter of Lyons, what they were doing is recognizing the authority of scripture. So, so yeah, there probably has been a deconstruction of types. I don't want to be anachronistic and kind of take this maybe a 20th century concept and putting it back, but we can see, sure. you know, obviously there was a uh, eroding or no longer affirming certain elements of a, an embodied or an encultured Christianity so they were critiquing that and and asking what should we give up and what should we keep. So I mean, I I could go on on this sort of thing, but the difference between Lutherans and Reformed is that the, the Reformed folks said, let's get rid of everything that's not affirmed in the Scriptures, um, and this like particularly in worship, uh, like a worship service, divine service. So they they took that regular principle and applied it that way, where the Lutherans talked about the adiaphora, and they said, well, hey, if it, if scripture doesn't speak against it, we can keep it, all right, where the reform said, no, if scripture doesn't teach it, we're not going to do it, so a little bit of difference there, that's probably a good, you know, sort of illustration of differences of a sort of deconstruction during the period of the, the Reformation, um, the, the issue today, uh, especially at the beginning of the, the 21st century, um, some evangelicals were really interested in deconstructing. And I think there's help, helpful elements of that, uh, of, of what, what have we simply created is maybe the, the rules of men rather than what scripture actually teaches. So it's, hel it's helpful periodically to chip away at some of those things and be renewed by the center of the gospel. The problem is, is that some evangelical leaders um, began to deconstruct theology and very important theology and went down the road of progressivism, uh, giving up uh, the core uh, and some of the elements. So we begin to see this with some jettisoning historic views on hell, um, perhaps, you know, the atonement, certain, certain important issues. And so um, anyway, uh, you can go too far with, with deconstruction. 
if you do some, that's that's positive. You have to reconstruct based on scripture, what scripture says, and I think some some uh, wisdom uh, from from history and uh, theologians and practices throughout the the, his, the the history of the church. I think this is also interesting. I feel like I could ask questions all day. Do you have time for one more question? Because I do want to sure. be respectful of your time. Yeah, uh, yeah sure. And, and again, this might be an impossible question to answer. Uh, but again, I, I don't, it's not every day I talk to people who wrote a whole, a whole book on evangelistic history. I feel like evangelism is a huge struggle in the church in America. I'm sure it's more or less, I'm sure it's been a, a struggle throughout church history for various reasons. But is there, if you had to nail it down to one, the, the top reason uh, why evangelism has been a struggle throughout the history of the church, what views the most prevalent that you see? Hmm. The, the biggest reason uh, for the struggle. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, to put it simply, it's probably fear. But now the question is, you know, the sources of fear. So sometimes very legitimate, like we've discussed already, the government. So under communist China, that could, could have been an issue. Now, I've, I have a student in my evangelism class right now who's from China, mainland China. He's worked for 10 years in a campus ministry. And, uh, you know, I, I'm asking him, how do you go about sharing Jesus? And uh, there's a wisdom, but there's also a fear. So obviously he can't hold public meetings or he would be arrested and, you know, could be jailed or, you know, some sort of fine. And so, you know, he lives with that fear, um, but it doesn't stop him. So, you know, he, he uses his house a lot, has people over for dinner. And in that context, um, knows, you know, people are, aren't going to have an, a problem with that. He's, he's going to be under the radar. And so he'll share Christ and, um, and share his testimony and invite people to, to believe in and follow after Jesus. Uh, so, you know, historically, uh, Political fear uh, would be one. That's where Christianity is not legal or tolerated. Um, others is social, you know, fear that there is um, fear of rejection. I think in the West, this is probably uh, one that uh, we have faced and we will continue to face. I think we're seeing, I'll go back to, I I believe that some Christians are kind of adjusting their gospel and adjusting their uh, moral positions because of fear, fear of rejection socially. Um, we've created, Josh, if I could speak something, you know, something to the seeker sensitive churches who have been leading in evangelism. There was a time where that seemed to be working really well. And I would advocate that you know the 1980s and so um, but we became very in in our in our desire to contextualize the gospel we also lost in many ways our ability to confront idols of culture and we're we're starting to feel that uh increasingly as there's more and more rejection or per persecution of christian views so if we've gotten comfortable in our seeker-sensitive ways to reach non-believers and not offend them, uh, with the increased pressure on us, 
either we have to continue to kind of bend uh, to the, the ways of our, our culture, or we have to take a stand. And that's a little hard for, you know, those that have been discipled in seeker-sensitive contexts. So we're, we're seeing that. I could give examples. I won't, but we are seeing examples of that happening um, today. So that would be the fear of that social uh, rejection uh, would be, I think, a real a real issue. Um, I teach here at Trinity a course called Gospel Cultures in Church and Western Contexts. Um, I taught the course this spring. I had a number of uh, students from even around the world, even though it's on Western uh, uh, contexts. And I had a student from Burkina Faso, who uh, from from Africa, uh, the west coast of Africa, who who said to us as as Americans in the room, Westerners, he said, uh, why are you so afraid of not being liked? Like for him, he sees us as, oh, you know, we're, we don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> we don't want to do this or that. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a fear that, that he sees within us. Again, kind of that fear of uh, social rejection and rejection is, is hard, you know, yeah. um, but so we have to live with that. We just, I think as Christians, um, and that's what we see, I think in the first centuries when there was, Christians were subject to physical persecution, obviously social persecution. I think today the sort of social ostr uh, being ostracized as Christians, um, being made to look backwards and because of our beliefs. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this as Christians, this was true for Paul in Acts 17 when he's at Mars Hill. And some people said, Paul, you're crazy. You know, they actually called it like, you know, you're a lunatic. What yeah. you're talking about, this resurrection, you know. And uh, Russell Moore in his book Onward uh, talks about us in our increasingly post-Christian context, we're going to sound uh, increasingly strange or freakish. In, in other words, as culture goes more post-Christian, to talk about the incarnation of God in the flesh in Jesus just sounds odd to people. The crucifixion on the cross that provides a perfect sacrifice is efficacious to bring forgiveness to humans just sounds like madness to secular people. The idea of a resurrection, the idea of, of um, a second coming of Jesus, uh, the idea of a creation ex nihilo out of nothing sounds crazy. So the idea is, I think we have to, and other Christians in the past when they're feeling the pressure, you know, of, boy, what I'm going to say really sounds odd. I think we just have to own our strangeness. We have to own our, you know, that the gospel sounds odd and just say, listen, like, can I tell you this story? And this is uh, how history has been understood for years. There's a creation. There's a fall of humankind. God has a plan of redemption. He enters into the world ultimately because, um, uh, humans can't bring about um, a this this reconciliation, and so God does through the person of Christ, and God is at work. So you know the the narrative and the gospel itself has to be a part of it, but it's going to sound different. 
in some cases, people like, I think they said to Paul, you've gone mad, <laughs> you're crazy. We'll have to simply hear that and own it and say, okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I'm, like a, I'm like a crazy Christian. Um, and just be comfortable with that. So again, this is, I think, as we're entering, we're in 2022 and we're in this sort of new reality that I don't think, uh, you know, seeker sensitive is, is going to be the, the place. I think we just have to, as my student from uh, Burkina Faso, you know, said, hey, you guys, you know, you're not going to be liked. That's okay. <laughs> you know, uh, you're going to be put down. That's okay. Um, just own your Christianity, you know, own it and reap the, you know, whatever comes, comes your way. I think we're going to see people respond. We do have there are people who appreciate the values and views of Christians. People are very different than us. And uh, so we're going to embrace those people, meaning those become for us persons of peace, people that we can have conversations with. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, there's going to be people who are, you know, opposed to who we are and what we would hold to in terms of of Jesus, his very words. I mean, like I said, Jesus' words um, in Matthew 19, you know, from the beginning, God made them male and female. That's becoming rejected. It's not rejecting Christianity or form, it's rejecting Jesus. Just like Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, for a lot of time, people haven't liked that. Well, you know, that's an, there's an outright rejection of that. So we have to be ready for that. And uh, I think in the history, we can, we can um, identify with Christians throughout the history of the church because they've been in the same space where, in, in fact, it's probably more the case. Uh, they have had to take a stand and uh, knowing that they're going to risk their life. So I could talk talk a lot more if I could just mention like one person, yeah. Ans yes. Ansgar, Ansgar of Bremen who, you know, I mean, this, this wasn't simply a reality, but some people, you know, lived into this. So the whole missionary movement um, in Europe, and I alluded to earlier, my ancestors, you know, the Germanic barbarians in, in Northern Europe and in Scandinavia, you have to take somebody like Ansgar Bremen, who's known as the apostle to the North. He not only accepts the challenge of, of winning um, people, but but he actually goes into Scandinavia, known for its Vikings during the Viking era, known for their ruthless <laughs> treatment of peoples that they conquer. And we have these other examples. You know, I could use Francis of Assisi, who wins a, an audience with the Sultan um, during the the Fourth uh, Crusade in Damietta, Egypt knowing at any moment he can risk, he's risking his life, he could be put to death. Well, Ansgar Bremen does the same thing. He goes up to reach, you know, like, you know, it'd be like us today saying, let's go reach the Taliban. Yeah. You know, let's, let's, uh, let's, you know, they need to hear the gospel. And so I think that it's that fear of, you know, persecution. It's that fear of, of social rejection that keeps us from uh, responding. We have these great examples from history that uh, that number of people looked right in the face of, of persecution, the face of death, and said, hey, 
uh, God calls us to take this good news to the ends of the earth. And by God's grace, we're going into to Viking Scandinavia and reaching the people who at any moment can have our, our uh, can run us through with the sword. And, uh, you know, God honored uh, that faith and saw, saw conversions. Now, there's certainly also cases where people were met with the sword and, and died a martyr's death. Um, we don't have the story to necessarily to tell, but uh, that would have, again, back to Tertullian, where we kind of started our conversation, would have been such a powerful witness um, to those around. So some great stories in, in the history of, uh, of evangelism. Absolutely. And again, I really appreciated your book. And I think it's such an uh, important thing to study, how people have shared the gospel throughout time. And um, for somebody who's maybe not a pastor or, you know, not an academic, I, I, I think the book is still very accessible. Uh, and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I really enjoyed it. And again, thank you so much for yeah. taking time today. And I love learning about this stuff. Well, I'm glad uh, glad to have had you as a student, Josh, and to have, have had this uh, opportunity just now to, to have this conversation. So thank you very much.